All right, turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4. It says, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard it. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. I want to look today at faith and uh, what it's compromised uh, of. And Jesus shows us here that there's different kinds of faith, but really when you boil it down, there's just two kinds of faith at the end of the day. One is a saving faith, and the other is not. So I wanted to talk first about um, some of the faiths that don't save you. Um, one is a blind faith. That's a faith that has no evidence whatsoever to back up your belief. And this is, in fact, what Christianity is accused of, right? Over and over. Um, You have faith, we have facts. You have faith, we have science. But that's really a misunderstanding of faith, as we're going to see. Because a blind faith is really not a a faith at all. I mean, it's just kind of stupidity. So you don't don't believe contrary to the evidence or in spite of the evidence. I mean, think, for example, if if a financial advisor said to you, hey, there's this this great stock that I've had, and for the last five years, every single year, it's doubled in its worth. Um, and, and he wants you to invest in it. And you ask him, um, can, you show me, can you show me the data on paper? I, I want to see it. And he's like, nope. It's not available. Well, would you invest in that stock without any evidence? No, that wouldn't make sense. You want evidence before you commit to something. You want to know about it and have accurate information about it. And here's the thing. When it comes to evidence, um, we believers, we actually shine in the area of evidence because the amount of evidence when it comes to the Christian faith is so overwhelming. So overwhelming. There's mountains and mountains and mountains of it. Um, The Christian faith, out of any faith, 
is the most fact-attested faith in the world. That's not an exaggeration. So the only blindness going on is people unwilling to see if there really is evidence or not. I mean, try to find a book that argues for the truthfulness of Hinduism. Try to find a book that argues for the truth of Buddhism. They don't really even care um, objectively about Hinduism being true, about Buddhism being true. Now, there probably are a few books on Islam, apologetically. But the overwhelming amount, evidence after evidence, book after book, is for Christianity. Now, that doesn't in itself make it true. But it does mean you have access to information, to weigh the evidence, to decide for yourself what you believe. So Christians should champion the idea of an evidence-based belief. When we're told you have a blind faith, um, our response should be, if I have a blind faith, then there shouldn't be much evidence to support what I believe. Would you be willing to look at the little evidence there is? Right? I mean, they should be able to take you up on that offer. But likely, what is their response going to be? It's likely going to be no. And why is that? Because for most people, evidence isn't the problem. It's a heart problem. So who in the world would believe something without evidence? Uh, would you believe something without evidence? See, evidence is very, very important to God. Look at Numbers 35. Numbers 35. Evidence um, is seen here in Numbers 35. Here's what he says, starting in verse 29. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Your version might say uh, testimony, the testimony of witnesses. You have to have evidence to convict. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. It says a similar thing, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Two chapters later, Deuteronomy 19, it says in verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. God is concerned about evidence when it comes to justice. There has to be evidence. There has to be two or three witnesses. This theme is carried over from the Old Testament. Two or three, you hear that phrase over and over again. It's carried right over into the New Testament regarding evidence. Look at Acts 14. Here's what it says in verse 16 of Acts 14. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, 
for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So here, he's talking about evidence. What does the witness do? Testify to the evidence. And what is the evidence? That God was good to them. That he displayed himself through his goodness to them by what? Giving them rains, satisfying their hearts with food, and giving them gladness. Those are evidences of God's goodness to them. And then look at Romans 1. In verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. The creation itself is evidence. Evidence of what? Of God. To who? To mankind. He displays evidence. It's important to him. Um, it should be important to us too, right? Evidence. So, God, I mean, think of the psalm, um, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? What's the purpose of the stars? Like, they're glorifying God. They're to show us his handiwork. I mean, we could have just been born, like, in a... Uh, he could have just made, made the earth kind of in this, like, um, like, spacious vacuum or something like that. Wouldn't that be weird? Like, just no stars, just nothing, right? See those? Can we take those little white dots out of there, all right? Just a little vi visual imagery. I mean, just imagine that, right? No, he gives evidence. Even creation itself, not just the earth, but the entire creation is evidence of God. I asked earlier if you would believe something without evidence. I think most of you said no. Um, I've believed things without evidence before. Because haven't you ever listened to someone gossip or slander and you've believed them without evidence? So we need to be careful. We need to be careful. These words destroy, right? God made it so clear that evidence is important. Two or three witnesses, that's how important it was. Okay, you couldn't destroy someone's life from one person. Um, the surrounding nations, uh, the laws were completely different. Um, God's system in the Old Testament is a just system. The punishment fits the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That makes sense. It's justice. The surrounding nations back then, even nations today, steal a loaf of bread, Get your hand cut off. That's not eye for eye or tooth for tooth. But God's system is just. The guilty are punished, the innocent set free, and the guilty have to be proven guilty. Thus, our current legal system is saying, innocent until proven guilty. Well, where did that come from? Right out of the scripture. Innocent until proven guilty. This is still largely true in our courts, um, but sadly, almost entirely false in the court of public opinion. An allegation is equivalent to a guilty verdict. So he cares about evidence. He leaves tons of it regarding himself, the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus, all of it. 
he leaves a witness for us. Thus, we can say that Christianity is based on fact. Thus, we can say Christianity is the most reasonable faith there is. What other kinds of faith are there? Well, look back in Luke, back in 8, he mentions two things. He mentions the rocks and the thorns. What are the rocks? They hear their word, receive it with joy. They don't have a root, they believe for a bit, and then they fall away. Anybody know anybody like that? Sadly, I do. What's the other ones? The thorns. What happens to them? They go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Anyone know anyone like that? Sadly, I do. Okay, so fruit might be seen for a while, but it doesn't last. In the end, they fall away. And then James talks about uh, a dead faith. Look at James chapter 2. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here James is, is hitting at this idea of acknowledging the truth of something, but doing nothing about it. Faith without action, we might say. So when it comes to a faith that saves, there is a big difference between it and other types of faith. And when scholars or theologians talk about the types of, of saving faith, there's really only one. But when they talk about the aspects of it, there's really three aspects that they will discuss. The first one is knowledge. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 says this, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What's the first aspect? Knowing. You have to know. You have to know information. You have to be, have it presented to you. Information. What's information? You know, like, who's the 16th president of the United States? Something like that. Anybody know? <clears throat> How about the first president? <laughs> Most people would say George Washington. Okay, so it's information. Um, I was a religious studies major at college. I studied Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, a bunch of religions people haven't heard of uh, additionally. But knowledge of Buddhism doesn't make you a Buddhist. Studying the tenets of Islam doesn't make you a Muslim, right? Uh, but the first step, really, is you do have to have 
a knowledge about the thing in which you're contemplating having faith in. So knowledge is the first aspect. The second one, though, is assent. Okay, we might call it intellectual assent. Um, knowledge is not enough. Assent is acknowledging that the information is true. That the information is true and accurate. It's factual. You assent or prove that it's true. But is that, is that enough alone to save you? No, it's not. Uh, years ago, I was at IGY, and I, was, I remember talking with a kid, and uh, he said, I know it's all true. I know, it's all, I know the gospel. He could give me the gospel. Um, he said, I know it's all true, but I don't care. I know I'm going to hell, but I don't care. And I've met just a handful of people like that over the years where it appears, I mean, they have the knowledge and then they even have the assent. They will intellectually assent that the Christian faith is true. But just knowledge and facts and assent doesn't save you. That person's not saved. They admitted it themselves. Look at um, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now notice that he uses the plural form, we. We know. He's including more than himself here. Was he including other Pharisees? Perhaps. But, but he's saying, we know it. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he has this, this discourse with Nicodemus, right? And what's the point that Jesus is driving at? I mean, if you look at the interaction, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus says in verse 4. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was very well educated and very sharp. That's why this, this passage can be challenging for people, because Jesus is, is basically kind of going point for point with Nicodemus and matching his intellect. So you have to kind of get into this to understand it better. Um, <clears throat> and he's wanting Nicodemus to really kind of decide, hey, Nicodemus, like, where are you at? Where are you really at? Let's take this from the abstract into the practical. He says, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Bingo. Right? Right there. So there's the knowledge, there's the assent, but it's the receiving. Just like John talks about earlier in John 1, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 12, if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, how is that possible? Because earlier, Nicodemus says, we know 
that you are a teacher come from God, and the things you do only can be done unless a man was sent from God. They know, but they don't believe. Huge difference. Huge difference. So then he goes, and finally he drives the point home. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Which leads right into John 3.16. So, uh, intellectual scent is not enough. Think of um, James 2.19. What does it say? Even the demons believe. And what do they do? That's right. They tremble. They shudder. Uh, but the demons believe it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Because the demons, they know the truth. They know it's, it is true. They intellectually assent. Um, but their belief does them no good. It is not a saving faith. And then we have this interesting passage in Acts 26 I want us to look at. Paul's on trial, and he's before King Agrippa. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I mean, there's, yeah, there's people like that today, too. You kind of, wow, you know so much, uh, it's really kind of... Messed you up a little bit. Um, you're out of your mind. For the, uh, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. He's talking about King Agrippa. Okay? The king knows. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Believe what? Believe the prophets. Because look at his response. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So Agrippa is acknowledging, I mean, he's not a believer. He hasn't put his faith in Jesus, but he knows these things. He believes, intellectually assents to these things. It's not a saving faith. What is missing? The last aspect, trust. Trust. Knowledge and assent are not enough. You have to trust. You have to depend on Jesus to save you. You can't do it. You can't do it. And listen, pride keeps many people, many people from salvation. So you move from being an observer of the facts to believing the facts to trusting Jesus to save you. Here's a, here's a good definition of saving faith. Saving faith is trust in Jesus as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. Now, when I first got saved, um, I didn't even know about apologetics. I didn't even know really about defending my faith. Um, but one thing that I asked people over and over again when I would talk to them 
is I would, I would ask them, like, what's your, basis, what's your basis for your belief system? I mean, because I would say, you know, my basis is the Bible. So that, that's what I'm basing. Everything I believe is based on the Bible and all the evidence that, you know, shows that it's accurate. But what's your, what's your belief system based on? I just want to know what it's based on. Most people couldn't answer that. But, you know, they'd, they'd tell me different things. Okay, what is it based on? I mean, is it based on the Quran? Is it based on the Bhagavad Gita? Is it based on the Upanishads? I mean, what's it based on? Is there, I mean, and most people never even claimed any of those things, any of those scriptures. It was usually just, well, that's what I believe. Well, that's great. There's like 7 billion people in this world, okay? And there's probably 7 billion different opinions on different things. Why is yours the one that's right? This isn't something to trifle with when you're dealing with your soul. One of the reasons I like the Rethink Apologetics Conference that we've been going to the last few years, and one of the reasons I like apologetics, is because Rethink and apologetics takes care of the first two aspects of faith. But it only takes care of the first two aspects. Okay, so it can give you all the information and all the knowledge and, and prove to you that it's true and it's accurate. But the one thing that it can't do, that I can't do, that your parents can't do, that no one can do but you, is trust. You have to trust. And here's the thing. When we talk about saving faith, it's not, it's not quantity of faith. It's not quantity of faith. Um, it's the quality. It's the quality of faith. Uh, look at this in Luke 17. I want you to see this. Verse 5, Luke 17, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Uh, how can Jesus say this? This is tiny little faith. This little mustard seed faith, right? Tiny, tiny, tiny little seed. It's because the amount of faith doesn't matter if it's a genuine faith. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. You're going to meet people who have all sorts of huge faith and all sorts of different things. That doesn't matter. It's the quality of the faith. Okay? And it's where you put your faith in or who you put your faith in. Think about, you know, people talk sometimes, I want faith that moves mountains. Well, that's like the parallel passage in Matthew 17, and it's the same comparison, the mustard seed. If you just got the mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, just that mustard seed. Why? It's not about quantity. It's about quality. You got to have the same. You can't, it's not just you got to have faith. You got to have a saving faith. That's what it's talking about. So here's the thing. Um, it's interesting. When you look at uh, John... I didn't even realize this until I was getting, getting this sermon ready. But the noun form of believe, the noun form in the book of, of John, is never used once. What's the, does anyone know the noun form of believe? It's kind of a, it's not really a trick question, but it's faith. It's faith. It's disappointing that we take the same Greek, basically, word group, 
and translate it with two completely different words in English. It's unfortunate. Because the noun in Greek is pistis, and the verb is pisteo. So you can see they come from the same kind of foundation there. But we use faith for the noun, and then we use believe for the verb. Faith, the word faith, never found in the Gospel of John. How many times is believe found? 98 times. Why? Because for John, John wanted to emphasize that faith was an active thing. And what's active? Nouns or verbs? Verbs. Verbs have action. Right? Verbs have action. So he wanted to emphasize that. He wanted to emphasize that faith isn't static. There is action to faith. So he chose every single time when he wanted to talk about faith. He chose the verb form believe. Even John 3.16. I want us to turn there. I know you got it memorized, but I want you to see it written out. So look at John 3.16. And we're just going to have to go late today. I'm sorry. So We even have communion too, so I will try to, to wrap it up at some point. Um, <laughs> okay, you guys with me in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word I want you to focus on, believes, I want you to focus on, there's the believes, right? In. I want you to focus on that word, in. Um, the normal form without the word in, when you just talk about belief, why does, yeah, I mean, have you ever wondered why does it say believe in him, not just believe him? It says believe in him. Well, John's actually drawing straight from the Hebrew, and he almost like transliterates it, so to speak. He, doesn't, he just tries to take the cleanest, clearest, um, straightforward, literal translation that he can from the Hebrew idea because he wants to keep something in mind here. In the, uh, in the ancient times, if you talk about believe, and you would just use that word, I believe this, I believe that, I believe this, it would just refer to the two first aspects of faith I talked about the knowledge, and the assent. And John did not want his readers to just think that salvation was about knowledge and intellectual assent. So he literally takes the, the Hebrew and, and puts it in here and essentially coins a new term, a new Greek term with this believe in. It is not found anywhere in ancient texts in Greek. Nowhere, literally. So he comes up with this new, usually it's just believe, believe this, believe that. He comes with believe in. Why? Because he wanted to emphasize the moral side that faith, when it comes to believing, you are believing in, there is an action towards Jesus of trusting. Paul picks up on this same concept. Over and over again, you're reading uh, Ephesians, Colossians, it's always in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, right? I mean, it's really that same idea. To to believe in really means to be a joining with Jesus himself. You can't really stand afar and believe. Not in Jesus. It's a joining with. And, and John wanted to make that crystal clear, the most important maybe verse in the New Testament. Because if you just have 
a faith of knowledge or a faith of assent, it does you no good. You're still on your way to hell. You have to trust. You have to trust. And so the question is, do you trust in Jesus? Now, most people, maybe everybody here in this room, if we went around, you'd probably have the knowledge, you'd probably have the assent. I don't know about the trust. That, I mean, the Lord knows. And I remember, um, I mean, that's, that's the question. Do you have a saving, a saving faith in Jesus? Um, and that's the one that trips people up. That's the one that trips people up. I remember um, sailing on uh, Lake Carlisle. It's over in Illinois, maybe an hour and a half away. I was a senior in high school. I'd recently passed one of my sailing tests with the scout troop I was a part of. And so they let me go out. They put another person on a little sailboat with me. And they're like, hey, you can go out you know, by yourself and be in control of the boat. I was like, woo. So I um, got on the boat. And I was like out there. And I was like playing around and doing stuff. And I, was, and I looked at the other side of the lake, and I'm like, I can make it. <clears throat> because it's always, it's just, it's kind of like, it always seems real, the flatter something is, I mean, it's like the closer it seems or something like that, you know? It's like miles on the other side. I didn't realize at the time, because I'm like, I'd get there in a couple minutes. So I'm like sailing on this tiny little, um, this tiny little boat, and I'm heading there, and I look behind me, and I see that my friends in the scout troop are on a bigger boat, like coming after me. And they got two sails, and I got one, right? So just, you know, do the math. Um, they're going to catch up. <laughs> so I, like, tighten in the sail, you know, as tight as I can. I'm trying to hit the wind just right because I want to get to the other side. They're not going to catch me because I can't have that. And then I can, as they're getting closer, they're, like, yelling and everything, which makes me just more determined and focused that I'm going to make it to the other side. And then they finally catch up to me, and they're like, you idiot, there is a storm coming. Turn around. <laughs> I was so focused on making it to that other side and not being caught that I had totally missed that this storm was coming up and I was going to be caught out in the middle of this lake where the wind, what happens before a storm? You know, wind dies. And so what, what happened? I had a decision to make, right? So I had the knowledge. I looked. I could see the storm slowly coming in. I had the knowledge. I believed it. But I had to do something about it. I had to trust that the knowledge was accurate, trust my friends, and do something about it. It had to be an act of faith. I turned the boat around. Right? Has to act. So <clears throat> once there's a basic understanding of facts and an approval to the facts, you have to trust in the facts. In this case, you have to trust the person, Jesus and here's the thing. Maybe you've witnessed to people. I hope you've witnessed to people. hope you are witnessing to people. Um, but you ever been witnessing to people, and you're like taking them, maybe you're taking them through like the Romans road, and they're like nodding their head the whole time. Yep. Yeah, I believe that. Yep, that's true. Yep, Jesus died. Yeah, he rose from the dead. And then, what do you do at the end? Would you like to trust Jesus as your personal Savior? And they're like, uh, no. And you're like, what went wrong? Like, they're taking step after step after step after step. They're, they have the knowledge. They have the ascent. Why? Because those are the easy two aspects. It's the third one that people don't want to do. 
It's the trust. People don't want to trust. That's what trips people up. That's why you get to that, and, and they look like, you're crazy. Trust? Trust someone else completely, 100%? You have to be pretty humble to do that. So our Christianity, I'm going to conclude. We've got a lot of false Christianity in churches, sadly. People are fine going to church, be a little better, act a little better, speak a little better. They're good with that. Many people who go to church are nice people. They're nice people. You'd like them to to have them as neighbors. Um, Here's what I want to emphasize to you. Most people hearing this right now, everybody in this room, probably everybody, maybe every single person, thinks they're saved. And what I don't want you to do is think about who else in this room might need to hear this. Because you need to hear it. 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourselves. Examine, not, not examine the person in front of you. Not examine your spouse. Not examine your children. Examine yourselves. That's where it starts. Start with yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And that's what we need to do, really, on a regular basis. But that's what I want you to do now, to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You need to ask yourself, am I one of the Father's children? And I hope that if you are not, that basically like God takes a, like a spiritual rope with a very heavy rock and he ties it around your heart so that it weighs you down and you feel the weight of not knowing God so that you will have upon you this weight that only Jesus himself can remove. Because the weight is there. You might not feel it, but the weight is there. But I want you to be weighed with that burden of not knowing Jesus if you really don't. Because I would hate for anyone to think they know Jesus and then on the day of judgment be wrong. And there are going to be people like that. People who've been to church. People who've done great things. And they're going to be wrong. So examine now while there's time. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray you'd speak to them about the state of their soul right now. That you would weigh it heavily upon them if they do not know you. Speak to them clearly, Lord. Let them not just know an assent, but trust. Truly trust right now, Lord that they would put their trust in you and in your son, that you would give them the gift of salvation. Do this, Lord, for your glory. Amen.